This is Inside Berkeley. I'm Kim Ashton. On this special edition of Inside Berkeley, the Burns' Tony Brown completes his conversation with bassist, vocalist, Grammy winner, and Berkeley alumna Esperanza Spaulding, who called into the studio from New York. In the first part of the interview, which aired last week on Inside Berkeley, they talked about the creation of her latest album, Emily's D Plus Evolution, and about how the song Unconditional Love came about. In this segment, they move on to her early days and influences in Portland, Oregon, and then to upcoming projects. Let's take a listen. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, your development. Uh, the first thing is uh, many interviews I've watched and, and read, uh, you talk about your, your upbringing and your admiration that you have for your mother, how important her approach was to your passion. Talk about that a little bit and how her approach helped you uh, in the end get to where you are. Um, wow. <laughs> my, uh, my perspective on that has changed a lot in the last year or so, I have to say. Hmm. So I think, actually, my, my mom was really hands-off in a cool way when it came to my music and just art, whatever it was, drawing or singing or playing or even acting a little bit when I was a kid. It was like, I'd get curious about something and, and I'd find a place that did it. And I was like, hey mom, can I go do this? And she'd say, yeah. You know, <laughs> if it was free or if I could, you know, work up enough babysitting money to go do it, she'd say, yeah. And then she never made me practice. She never, like, reprimanded me if I didn't practice. And I, but I felt, you know, she was very present um, around, like, the basic necessities, you know, like good, healthy food and a roof over our head, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I actually think having the room let music be what I needed it to be for me. We went through a lot of really hard stuff when I was growing up. And I really think that music was like my own little escape and like medicine. It was soothing. And I actually think the fact that my mom never forced me into using it in a certain way, like for the sake of pleasing my piano teacher or, you know, making sure that I had learned the third violin part for Scheherazade for the performance in the schools later, whatever. I think it actually allowed me to have my own relationship to it, which feels like the greatest gift that I have about music. Mm. Um, like, I really experience it like a like a safe place, you know? It's like a home, in a way, you know? When there's all this other tumultuous, crazy stuff happening all the time, um, sound or movement or imagery always felt like the thing that I had that I could go do and I would be cool, you know, and I'd feel good and I could connect with people and share with people and talk with people. And um, I, I, I just feel like the best thing she could have done was to just kind of let me use it, how, like, intuitively that makes sense. Sometimes as we get a little older, we begin to see our parents in ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And what... What things are you now noticing in yourself that you, that's my mom talking? <laughs> it's that thing 
she really doesn't care. She doesn't <laughs> care what people think. And, it, and it, it was a big sore spot for me growing up because she, I thought she dressed crazy and she never wore makeup and she looked kind of frumpy to me and she, she was so hyper-conscious of just sustainability. She didn't have that word, but of just, we, we only eat really healthy organic food. She recycled everything. She reused every plastic bag. You know, we didn't have a car, so we took the bus. She wouldn't buy anything made in China. When she found out that there were sweatshops involved, she wouldn't buy synthetic materials. She just was, people kind of saw her as eccentric, and I used to feel really embarrassed that she was my mom because she didn't look or act like anybody else that we knew. And I'm from Portland, so she, just imagine. She must have, she was like really, um, really like living every waking hour according to her philosophy, kind of. I, I, that's how I understand her. Um, she's like a naturalist. You know, not in the sense of being naked, but she just really wants to make sure that her life on this earth is not a burden to Mama Earth. So I grew up feeling like, God, this is so embarrassing. She's wearing these shoes. She's, like, pulling out this recycled glass container with her lunch so that she doesn't, like, you know, waste paper. And she always has silverware there. And now I'm starting to to recognize, <laughs> like, this underlying, I don't give a fuck what you think about me thing. Right. And it kind of surprises me, I guess, because <laughs> I used to care so much. <laughs> and I think that's just my mom. I think that's that groundwork that she laid, where it's like, I don't think, I don't care if you think I'm crazy or if I look funny or if this doesn't, I mean, I want to know if you think it doesn't make sense, because I, I do believe in collaboration and education. But the perception people's perception of me, I guess I don't care. And um, that can be detrimental, too, as I've seen with my mom. <laughs> well, as we an are... artist, as a public person, too, I mean, I'm sure there's people who are behind, who work with you, who are, who are trying to make that image something, right? It... Well, the image is me. Hmm. You know, there's no added stuff. Got it. You know, what you see is me, and that, that's been a, I'm very insubordinate, which has been a major source of contention with me and a lot of people that I've worked with in the music business. Often, maybe I'll even want what they say, but if they say it to me in a way where it sounds like they're trying to make me do it, I, I have a really hard time accepting that. Um, so I think I get that from my mom, too. She's very insubordinate, she's very independent, and she's kind of like an activist at heart, you know? Mm-hmm which is like, I cannot play along with the rules if it hurts people, or if it's unjust, or if it's not true. And um, so much of business and of entertainment is compromising on little lies for the sake of like a bigger victory. And I have a really hard time with that. I have a really hard time with that. And, um, but it's fine sometimes. Sometimes it's not fine because you do need to be able to just have some compromise and give and take in business. So I'm learning about that. But I definitely see my mom coming through. Your development was really spurred on by um, the group of musicians in Portland who kind of took you under their wing and uh, allowed you to kind of grow and taught you a little bit. And, and that was the band Noise for Pretend, correct? One of the, one of many, oh, yeah. Gotcha. I was enmeshed in a really rich 
environment there, really, really rich. I mean, and from when I was a kid, it was a cultural recreation band, and then I was in Chamber Music Society of Oregon, and then when I got into Portland State University, I was playing with all the bands of students in the jazz department there, and of course I was, I was in the classical department there as a bass major, but I just, the, the, the culture was really um, supportive. It, it was like this mentorship thing where people, you know, older musicians would invite you and a few young kids over to listen to records. Wow. That was it. It was like, you know, drink tea and eat cookies and have some wine. Yeah, we were underage, but still, whatever. And and listen to records. And then you go to jam sessions, and then you could call so-and-so and, like, ask if you could sit on their gig, and they'd say yes. And then, you know, Noise for Pretend was, like, a, a version of that in a different kind of genre, I guess. <laughs> but that's where I learned that I could uh, play and sing. And that opened up a whole bunch of possibilities when it came to writing my own music and playing in other people's bands. Um, and then while I was at Portland State University, the, you couldn't get a, you couldn't major in jazz studies, but I was doing my minor in jazz studies, and Daryl Grant, who was the head of the department there, told me about Berkeley, and he said, you should apply, they're going to be holding auditions in Seattle. And it, thanks to him, I ended up, you know, going to Berkeley and having the adventure that unfolded from there. It, it, and that's just the perfect kind of, like test, I mean, that's like a perfect example of how the culture works there. It's like we want to nourish each other, and if I know something that would help you, I'm going to tell you, and vice versa. Yeah. It's not a very, like, competitive, career-oriented place. Got it. And the other aspect of that is uh, critical feedback that you've talked about before, and, and kind of using uh, critical feedback as fodder, um, even when in, in times when you're... In, you've been embarrassed or um, in situations where, uh, like an open jam or something like that. Yeah, there's no other way. You can actually turn into something else. It's like people are keeping you from getting eaten by sharks and falling off cliffs. It's like for your own well-being. You know, when when an elder statesman or even just somebody your age pulls you aside and is like, man, you ever check out Dada? Or like, you know, you totally cut, or like, you know, you missed the beat. Like, like you gotta look at these changes, man. You fuck them up or whatever. Like, it's it's because underneath it all, the fact somebody's even talking to you means they care about your progress as a musician. Because when people don't care, they just don't say anything. And I think that's a really dangerous position to be in, where you have given the message that people can't talk to you because you're gonna get your panties in a twist, or you're gonna get all upset, or like resent them for telling you the truth. <laughs> or, I mean, even if it's not the absolute truth. You want to encourage feedback. You want to encourage critique, even if it hurts, and even if it's not always accurate. Because how else are you going to know where the edge of the cliff is or where the good stuff is? It's more like they're they're, they're tipping you off to where the treasure's hidden. And if your job is to hunt treasure, which really, that's kind of what we do as creators, why why would you ignore a good tip? What was the best... Thing that you've ever learned about the music industry? Is I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, uh, we were just, <laughs> I was just reading Dune the other day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just reading, I just have been reading it for the last month. I just finished it the other day. And I remember <laughs> there's this part about 
person who controls what somebody else needs actually has the power. Even if, even if the person who needs what you control has all the resources and the money and the might, ultimately you have the power because you have the spice in that analogy of doom. And I guess I just, because I don't need to be rich, it's not one of the things on my wish list and I don't need to be famous. It's not one of the, I have definite things on my wish list that I'm going for in my life as a creator, but those two things aren't one of them. And when, when I'm going in to have a conversation with a potential collaborator in the business, when they realize that I'm not trying to get the two main things that they have to offer, we have to kind of, we have to deal. <laughs> we have to deal more as equals, I think. Mm. And I just assume if anybody's interested in me, even if it's like lightly, because they know I control something that they want. And if, as long as I know that I don't have to give it to them, I don't have to sell it to them, I don't have to bring it to them, unless it feels mutually beneficial, I've always had really beautiful exchanges with people. Hmm. So, in a way, they're not controlling anything that I need, and I am totally happy to take what I control somewhere else. Right. Because if somewhere else doesn't pay as much or isn't as high profile, but I'll get to create what I know I need to create and administer my medicine to the people who will, will hear about it, people figure out pretty soon in dealing with me in business that I'm going to go with the latter rather than the former, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been a good lesson. And every time I've uh, swayed, uh, what do I say, uh, um, strayed from that understanding uh, or, or that I guess philosophy or mode of practice, played from that practice, it's usually come to shitty consequences. Hmm. You know, either I'm somebody older than me or somebody more experienced than me in the music business who's like counseling me and saying, you know, you really, you got to, this is just something that you have to because it could lead to all this and like, and I go against what I know to be true, which is what I just described to you. Hmm. Um, It usually ends up that I feel a little uh, had or burned out, or like a little bit like a sellout. And for me, as a person, those two to three feelings that I just described are not worth all the money and fame in the world. Last question for you. Um, I know that this is sort of a, at the end, it was the end of the, the album cycle, the album putting it out and marketing and touring. So what is next for your music? I'm writing and recording the next project, um, and I don't know exactly what it's going to look or sound like yet, because I just know that it's about walls, and it's about breaking them down, the walls that keep us from each other, keep us from sometimes ourselves, um, keep us from what we want, or keep us away from what we're afraid of, and I want there to be some elements of research involved that come from um, kind of the, the most recent discoveries in neuroscience of how sound and vibration and movement uh, affect our neurology and actually can help us um, have a moment of relief 
from being on defense, being in survival mode. Um, I, I think in survival mode, when you're on the defense, it's a very practical state if you are surrounded by threat, of course, and a lot of people are really afraid of losing their house or job or getting injured or, you know, not getting the love that they need. Um, but when you're in that state of survival, it's really hard to connect and it's really hard to hear what's important and to plan for what you want um, and to collaborate. You're afraid of people. So that's what the project about. Uh, I, I literally just started sketching, so I don't know what it's going to sound like yet, but um, that's happening. And then it will all come out in the fall. And then um, other than that, the big thing I'm working on is the libretto for Wayne's, Wayne Shorter's opera. Mm. It's going to be about Iphigenia. That's going to premiere in 2019, probably. Mm. And um, so those are really the two things that I'm really about. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> for the foreseeable future. All right. Thank you. Uh, continued Bye. success. special edition of Inside Berkeley. For more podcasts, check out Sounds of Berkeley on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Or go to berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>